Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 163. Well, just ahead, crypto bank Silvergate punches short sellers in the mouth. But do they have a plan? And Halliburton gives us yet another clue as to when the drillers will start to drill again. We might have an answer. In Informatica, sees pandemic-induced digitalization across industries continuing. But what happens if remote work comes to an end? My conversation with software as a service company Informatica and CEO Amit Walla. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With ERA, customize your company watch list and track key events, fi- mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And there are so many ways you can listen to The Drill Down, but whatever your podcast player of choice. No, I should have stuck with the alliteration, Isaac. Whichever the podcast player you prefer is you're able to hit that subscribe button or the follow button. That way you'll catch every episode of The Drill Down. And The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We explain the business stories behind stocks on the move. And joining me to help me do that is our executive producer, Isaac Webster. Isaac, thank you. Corey, thank you. I'll go on. Thank, you know, thank you for everything. That was going on. That was going on. There we go. (laughs) Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let's start with Silvergate Capital. Silvergate Capital, it trades under SI. And shares are rallying today, but they fall, they've fallen over 19% in, the, in a year. In fact, shares have lost more than 46% since, since the start of 2022. Yeah, a big move in the stock after uh, reporting earnings. Um, this is a crypto bank. So it is a bank that came up with this interesting business plan. It's a plain old, you know, FDIC insured, you know, uh, registered bank uh, uh, that reported earnings today. And... Um, they came, but I should back up a little bit. They came up with a thing that they call a SEN, S-E-N leverage, which would let Silver Bank let customers borrow, borrow dollars based on the digital assets that they hold. So if they own specifically and only Bitcoin. So Bitcoin holders can get cash dollars lent to them based on the value of their Bitcoin. The problem is, obviously, the price of Bitcoin has fallen dramatically, well over uh, 60%. Uh, from its highs, over seventy percent from its highs, um, and so um, the question was, you know, when are these guys going to start to take some losses? When are they going to tell some customers that you they give them some margin calls, and how many of their loans is in, are insolvent? 
And to the great surprise of a number of short sellers, and indeed uh, 18% of the stock was sold short, or 18% of the float was sold short, which is a, not a ton, but it's, you know, it's not nothing here. Well, these guys were not insolvent. And indeed, when they came out and talked about uh, the number of crypto customers that they had, they had 1,585 crypto customers. It's a little more than they had previously. Um, and their fees from that business were down from a year ago. But, you know, given that, they haven't had the big losses. They said that they were, because of the assets were digital, they were able to really keep track of what kind of leverage they insisted that their customers have and made sure that those customers kept that leverage up. The question, indeed, on the conference call uh, after reporting these earnings um, uh, in the quarter was, you know, did you have to tweak your model? Did you have to say to customers, hey, before we said you had to have, I don't know, 50% coverage uh, of what you borrowed, do you have to have more or you have to have uh, show us more cash or show us more whatever? Well, not at all, uh, said Silvergate CEO Alan Lane. We didn't, uh, you know, we didn't have to make any tweaks at all. You know, one one thing that that we have done uh, since the market has calmed down a little bit is, you know, we've gone back and, you know, we've we we constantly update, um, you know, kind of the the historical experience of, uh, you know, the the significant drawdowns in the price of Bitcoin and the volumes and and you know. Um, how does the price, you know, act over a 24-hour period, a 48-hour period, 36 hours, et cetera? Um, but so our risk management processes are, are constantly looking at how the market performs. But um, we've not seen anything so far that would cause us to have to make any tweaks whatsoever. Um, and, you know, and again, this this is one of the reasons is Bitcoin only. Bitcoin, as everybody on the call is probably aware, you know, has has been live since 2009. And putting aside the price for a second, the protocol itself has been operating with zero downtime since 2013, since before we got into the ecosystem. So the Bitcoin protocol just continues to hum along, um, you know, generating blocks roughly every 10 minutes. Everything's working. And, and so from our perspective, you know, we certainly look at price action um, and, you know, we want to constantly make sure that, that um, you know, our risk management practices are sound. And so far, you know, so far there's been no need to make any changes whatsoever. So I found that answer to be a little bit silly. What he's basically saying is that Bitcoin still works. In fact, mm -hmm. the time to complete Bitcoin transactions has gotten much worse over time, uh, even if the minting of Bitcoins uh, continues. So, uh, you know, uh, that was not to me, someone who's not a, you know, a digital currency newbie. I thought Alan Lane's comments didn't really reassure me that, that just the fact that they're lending against Bitcoin means that it'll work because Bitcoin is such a consistent, uh, dependable tool for uh you know, payments and so on. And I should say there was a lot of conversation on the conference calls, these guys getting into the payment business and could they run a payment business on the Bitcoin rails um, and what that might look like. But again, I think the biggest story here is their customers did not default despite the massive drawdown of the value of Bitcoin. Corey, what is your next drawdown? Ally Financial. You've seen the ads probably. Oh yeah. And the, and the billboards and the, Signs on the buses Those around are LA. Ally Financial. Those trades are under Ally. 
What's that again? Those are all ads. Correct. Yes. Allied Financial trades under ALLY. And shares have dropped more than 34% over the past 12 months, currently trading around 33 bucks a share, a far cry from its 52-week high of 56. Yeah, I think a lot of stocks are looking at that kind of sell-off, but that's a bigger one. So why would this bank or this lending institution sell off so much more? Well, it goes back to its its roots. It was originally GM Financial, and although it's a you know, a digital only bank, it still provides 70% or so of their customers are coming from people borrow money to buy cars. Um, mm. And th- these results were a lot worse than a year ago. So revenues were up. A year ago, the second quarter is 1.6 billion. Now it's 1.8 billion. That's up, you know, yeah. two billion, $200 million, not a little, nothing between friends. But their profits were nearly cut in half. They went from 482 to 900. So more revenue, less profits, that's, that's not what you want to see. Uh, no. Why? Well, they had to put more loan loss reserves aside. So they had to say, hey, last a year ago this time last year, we actually were expecting fewer loans, uh, fewer uh, delinquencies and repossessed cars. This time around, we're actually expecting more. Now, they didn't jump up and down and say that on the conference call. Uh, indeed, they like to talk about how they had new loan originations of $13 billion. They had more uh, applications, the highest number of originations since 2006. But, you know, the big question for these guys are, are you know, is it, is, for example, rising interest rates should make uh, banks more profitable, right? It should mean these guys can make more, uh, lenders should be able to lend more and make more money. But less inventory and rising interest rates might scare customers away. It's a, it's a really, if you think about it, Ally is such an interesting spot right here because you know, we've got a, many fewer cars available to be purchased. We have rising interest rates. Certainly in housing, we've seen that rising interest rates has really slowed down the housing market. So oh, what yeah. are we going to see for cars? Here is Jennifer LeClaire, the chief financial officer of Ally Financial. We have not traditionally seen increases in interest rates impact demand. And I would say that this cycle is very similar to what we've seen in the past. And if, if anything providing additional tailwinds simply because supply has been constrained. Uh, you know, we continue to estimate four to five million consumers on the sidelines simply because they cannot find a vehicle to purchase. Um, and you couple that demand with our model that has consistently grown dealer relationships and dealer engagement, and in a period where you see a 19% reduction in sales units we're generating a 3% increase in application flow. Uh, so strong demand, a model that continues to win across prime and in particular prime used. Um, and you know, we, we really don't see this slowing down. I mean, keep in mind a hundred basis point increase in pricing for a loan, for a car loan is at, you know, 15 to $20 a month. Um, you know, and, and According to some data this week, that's kind of two loaves of bread these days. So we're not seeing a lot of price sensitivity just from the the, the car uh, car interest rates. Um, and in particular, I'd say in the more affluent segments, and we do see really strong application flow in the higher income earners, which we've defined as kind of over 50,000. Um, and our average um, in, in terms of income uh, of our customers that we're originating with is over 100,000. So in that segment, with the supply constraints and with our model, we really don't see this slowing down, and we don't see a lot of price sensitivity uh, for the interest rates, um, nor do we even for the car, which is a material 
which which is materially higher in these days. So despite the reservation for more uh, loan loss losses, despite the uh, the environment, I, I kind of saw that as somewhat bullish for these guys. Again, I don't make, I'm not making a stock recommendation, but God forbid, um, uh, you'd be a fool to do anything I want to do with, with the stock. But I, I do think it's interesting to see that these guys aren't seeing what you might would think would be bad news for them. That is a, a, um, a decrease in people borrowing because interest rates are higher. Well, I mean, it's a bit of a sales pitch though, right? Well, it's loaves of bread. Look, that's the thing about these conference calls. A sales pitch to investors, you know, you're going to be held to the, uh, the truth uh, of, of these statements in very short order. Corey, what's your next drill down? I may have asked you this before, but have you heard of Halliburton? <laughs> Indeed I have. You mean Dick Cheney's Halliburton? Uh, no longer. Has not <laughs> been for a very long time. Uh, what memories? Um, Halliburton trades under HAL. Did you shares see Vice? Of... Sorry? The, the movie Vice, did you see that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, was, I loved it, but I was disappointed by it, even as it happened. Why? How are you, why are you disappointed? I don't know. I thought it was a little, it tried to make things that were really um, ridiculous, silly. I thought the acting was tremendous. It's fantastic. Yeah. I, we're absolutely I, worth a watch. Yeah, it definitely is. And virtually back nothing to Halliburton. Halliburton. Right. So back to Halliburton. Uh, trades under HAL and shares have gained almost 47% in a year. Not bad, but it's still a ways away from its 52-week high, 44 bucks a share. Currently, HAL Halliburton is currently trading at 23 bucks a share. Which is to say that the stock rose quite a bit with oil, but fell a lot, quite a bit during the sell-off, right? Yeah. From 22 to 44 to about 30. If you can picture Correct. that. Uh, this is, of course, that giant uh, $34 billion enterprise value oil field services company with an international- Giant is an understatement. Well, I mean, Schlumber's a, a bigger company. There are those who would argue a better uh, company. I far be it for me to decide which driller to do your drilling, which completer to complete your completions. But oh, wow. um, international and North America- Revenue is up a lot, 38% revenue increase over a year ago to $5.1 billion. Uh, they took a big charge to get out of Russia, $344 million charge. It was on top of a charge last quarter of $22 million. But again, this question I keep asking on our show, when will the drillers drill? They've shown remarkable, um, and, and indeed they boast of remarkable um, uh, you know, reticence to uh, add a lot of supply to the oil market. They look like they just want to take price here and not really add to things. But Halliburton, of course, will be getting some of the first calls to say, hey, this well that we drilled needs completion, completion services, needs a connection to a pipeline. Can you come get our oil, Halliburton? So CEO Jeff Miller of Halliburton might be one of the first people to see in size when the North American operators are going to look at the return they're going to get from uh, rising prices and march right in, take some oil out of the ground, and it sounds like they're starting to do it. Listen to Jeff Miller. Yeah, you know, I think that um, you know operators, particularly in the U.S., um, understand returns and shareholder returns, and so do we. And so, you know, I think we see a steady march up, uh, but a healthy march up in the sense that. Uh, as we described, a lot of duration to this cycle, which I think is 
much welcomed by us and I think by our shareholders are going to benefit from that meaningfully because of the duration. So the, you know, you look at how we've improved the capital intensity of our business, uh, our clients view it the same way. And I think that, um, you know, so what we're going to see is more activity, no question, uh, because there's going to be demand for the commodity. Um, but it's, uh, so, so it's more around, could you add one or do you have an extra one? And really a lot of that dialogue, given lead times and uh, commitments around our own capital, and I think broadly the industry's commitment around capital as it comes down to, you know, what's the highest returning opportunity for that equipment is more of what that discussion goes like. So he's talking about lead times and he's talking about commitments around capital and he's talking about, you know, returning uh, money to uh, companies and their capital intensity focus. But it still sounds like he's saying there is a march up. I mean, a direct quote, a march mm -hmm. up right? and a healthy march up. Yeah, sure. You know when, you know when it stops being healthy? When it stops being healthy. But they march and then they run and then they sprint and then they fall over themselves to get more oil out of the ground. And it sounds like that's starting to happen. All right, coming up next, interesting conversation with software as a service company, Informatica, CEO Meet Walla, uh, uh, a guy that would really impress me, um, um, running this company, uh, taking it back into the public markets with uh, a new push forward through the pandemic and beyond. That conversation right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com, to learn more. Welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We are joined right now by Amit Walia, who is the CEO of Informatica, a company that is public once again. Therefore, uh, something for us to look at. Glad to have you on. What problem do you guys solve? Corey, first of all, great to be here and good to talk to you. Well, we solve the most important problem of today's generation, which is data. How do you make sense of data? How do you make business decisions, both in today and predicting the future with the help of this massive growth of data that we all see around us? That's what we do very simply, convert data into decision-making powerhouse. I remember looking at Informatica, geez, it's gotta be 12 years ago. Um, yeah, about that. And um, when I when I looked at your, your recent uh, annual report and I looked at some of your investing materials and read up on the company, I read all these modern buzzwords, these 2022 buzzwords of, of artificial intelligence and data mining and things that were not in the discussion of the same company 12 years ago. And I, I, I'm, I am thoroughly convinced that it's, it is doing what, the, what you guys are doing, what you say you're doing, but convince me that this is not a, a, a new paint job in an old uh, data warehouse company. That's a great question. Well, look, a lot has changed in 12 years. As we were talking about our kids, they've all grown up. They're ready to go out to college. So this yeah. company has changed in a similar way. You know, I'll just kind of simply put, we were a single product on-premise licensed software company. And the main problem we solved back in the days, 12 years ago, was basically what we call core ETL moving data from many different places into one data warehouse to do analytical workloads. That's what we did. 
But in the last 12 years, in fact, in the last five years since we went private, the world has changed dramatically. Digital transformation has come by. Every organization is becoming modern, cloud native. Everybody wants to use data to make business decisions. And what that did was massively exploded the need to manage data to do many more things. So what we became is from a single product to a native in the cloud multi-product platform company, went from licensed software to 100% cloud native subscription software. And that's the transformation we made. And we went from a small $7 billion TAM to now almost $44 billion TAM. So that's the transformation we made. And again, in the context of the digital organization, we solved both all the way from front-end customer churn, customer acquisition, analytical workloads, all the way to managing your supply chain, which is a huge issue in today's world. So we serve the end-to-end problems of a digital enterprise managing their data. So you referenced what our listeners probably don't know, which is that you took a publicly traded company, um, took it private, uh, kept it private for a while, made some really big changes in your offerings, and then wheeled it out of the garage again. It makes me think of one of my made-up sayings, which is, you can change a fan belt whilst the engine runs, but it's not the easiest (laughs) way to do it. It is not. So I think that's where going private helped, to be very honest. And in, in a way, what we did was, look, I was, uh, before I became CEO two and a half years ago, so I was the head of products when we went private. So this was near and dear to my heart. And what we did was fundamentally, we asked the question of us that if every organization is going into this cloud, digital, data first world, we cannot repaint the old company into new. So what we, we have to build a new company. So we literally took the old product, Corey, and put it on the side. We love it to death. It still does a great job. But we started building everything new from scratch. And that was a big decision for us. We did not retrofit yeah. anything old. So we built everything from scratch. So effectively in 2015, 2016, we started like a startup building new products. We had almost zero subscription revenue at that time. And this year, six years later, we've guided the street to a billion dollars of subscription ARR. So when we built out this platform, we've gone from zero to a billion dollars of guide this year. That's the scale that we have built. And to give you another word, another number that will contextualize for you, our cloud native platform, what we call IDMC, Intelligent Data Management Cloud. When we started in 2016, the usage of that was about 0.1, 0.2 trillion transactions a month, customers using it. Today, it's 32 trillion transactions a month. That's the enormity and the scale of what we accomplished. So I want to, I was going to suggest a customer and have you tell me how they use it, but Maybe I'll let, just let you pick a use case here. You list a bunch of customers in, in your filings yeah. and so on in investor presentations, but just pick a use case for me that can kind of explain where you guys sit in the in the uh, the customer or user experience, what happens in the back end and when you come in and what you spit out. No, it's a great one. And I, and I love, I was going to go there. I love the stories because that's what actually becomes very real. So pick a customer like Kroger. All of us know Kroger, right? It's the biggest retailer in this uh, in, in, in the a country. Favorite of ours here uh, on the podcast. We, we talk about their earnings a lot because I think it tells us so much about the world. Yeah, so Kroger is a big customer of ours. In fact, we put their story in our S1 when we went public. And what Kroger is doing is that, you know, think about analytical use cases. So Kroger is, especially during the days of COVID, the right product on the right shelf at the right time. That creates revenue opportunities and also... In their world, you reduce losses because if you put some wrong product on the shelf, ultimately you have to throw it away. It's perishable, so you basically have cost. So both driving revenue as well as managing cost. And what we help them with is to basically bring information, just-in-time information from their point of sale 
stocking information, any place any information sat and connected the warehouses with the stores so they can literally stock their stores from the warehouses just in time. All of it man managing in the cloud, stuff that they could not do in the old days, or stuff that could, would take them months to do. So of course they were lagging behind. Massively drove their customers sad by driving revenue as well as managed a lot of cost for them. On the other hand, you know, if I'm the CEO. So where would that data come from? So they they would, they would acquire their data, what, from customers they see, hey, customers buy a lot of asparagus in March, you know. Yeah, so transaction systems, point of sale systems. Then we also bring data from outside the four walls of a company that can help them predict weather data, usage data, what customers are trying to do, all of that kind of stuff. So not only data sitting in the four walls of an enterprise, but also going out and bringing it in. And that data might be sitting on, say, an Oracle database or SQL server or God knows. Anywhere. The reality is that the organizations are so supremely fragmented, Corey, that they have so many different places data sets. They sit in multiple Oracle databases, multiple SQL databases, you know, old traditional mainframe stores. By the way, also cloud applications, CRM applications, outside sources. So data sitting in almost hundreds of places, all in different formats. Bringing and it might be it sitting together. physically at, at the corporate headquarters and at a store Absolutely. and on Amazon Web Services on the cloud. Absolutely. Exactly right. As I saw so what I'm saying. So the thing that I always, the thing that every customer when I talk to the CIO or the CDO is that it's never an or problem. With data, it's an and problem. Everything compounds, adds. You want to bring all of this together to make a decision, right? Predictive decision. And if these are these are massively important decisions a company like Kroger is making. So that's what we help them to drive revenue, customer sat, and manage cost. For retailers, cost is a big issue. So, well, obviously, well, for all of us, cost is a big issue, right? Um, uh, except for my teenagers, my previously mentioned teenagers. <laughs> apparently, that isn't, no, I shouldn't say that. They're actually annoyingly miserly. Dad, that's too much money. I'm not going to get it. That's a different story. So, all right, so uh, take me through it. So, uh, so Kroger's g- gathering all this data from all these different sources. Uh, whether it's stuff that's coming in the door, what's happening with all the trucks making deliveries, what all the customers are buying, customers' historical purchase patterns. It's splattered all over, whether it's on local databases, on mainframes, in the cloud, cloud. Amazon. Okay, so then so then all this, you guys pull all that data together and then do some analysis. And then what is the output? It is, yeah, is, so it, a, is it a PowerPoint presentation that says, so good question. hey. So think of the flow. So we bring all the data together, bring it to a common data model. We put data, there are many things you do on top of it. You also do data quality on top of it because all of this data can be poor quality also, right? You have to match it together, bring quality together. In a lot of cases, there can be incomplete data. By the way, a customer record may not have your entire phone number missing your area code. So we'll append that data with our capabilities. Bring outside data. So, so much is happening to, when we say bring data together, it's not just connect 50 things and throw it in a place. No, so much happens to make it in a form factor that you can now do some analysis on. And then from there it goes into when the analysis We used to, call, happens, we used to call that middleware back in the day. That is exactly it. So that's middleware. And then it, and by the way, that data warehouse could be anywhere in the cloud. We are doing all this data management. In this case, if they used Google Cloud as well as some amount of Azure. And then in the last mile could be a Tableau dashboard or a Power BI dashboard through which they are consuming the information. So we do that whole complicated, middleware part, bringing it together, data quality, appending, filling data, cleaning it up, and then for them to run their statistical or predictive models on top, and then they can visualize through any tool they like to. We partner with all of them, whether it's a Tableau, Power BI, or anything. 
And does the is the customer the one who's sort of then once the data is um, put all together, cleaned up, appended, and and you've put it into a format like Tableau where they can actually see it and and start to try to understand it? Is the customer the one who's figuring out? Oh wow, our customers buy more sunscreen in the summer, um, or is it? Or are you saying, hey? Kroger, stop trying to sell sunscreen in Chicago in December. So it depends. Uh, it could be both, depending upon the customer. So for example, when we have our capabilities called master data management, there basically you're mastering a customer. We can help the customer predict, hey, what is the next best offer? Or if a customer like Corey has a profile of this, what are the things that they should buy? But a lot of customers like Kroger are very sophisticated. They have many, many complicated models they have built that they will take all of this stuff, run it through their models, and then come back to a platform to make decisions. So it can be both. It happens both. Uh, because each customer is unique, they would have built many of their capabilities out there on their own. That was a, 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 a orthogonal way of me to ask you if you have a lot of consultants uh, no, doing... We are a know, software company. Yeah. We well, a, lot software. Of, look, a lot of software companies have a lot of consultants. Mean, I mean, if you look at the sort of revenue per customer of a lot of software companies, you see companies that are actually, particularly in the security space, for example, you'll see a lot of companies that really are consultants with yeah, software. Not. Our goal is we're a software company. Our services is primarily in service to implement a product when a customer needs it, but primarily we leave it to the GSIs to do it. Um, we're, we're a product company, we're a software company, we're not in a body business. Okay, so uh, which is better margins and less hassle for a CEO? <laughs> no complaints there. We good margins. We got high gross margins, high operating margins. I'll give you another example. By the way, we're totally going from there. Take Gilead Sciences. I mean, you know, yeah. Gilead Sciences by a pharmaceutical company, and they basically again took our IDMC platform and they were solving a what we call a master data management use case where they wanted to do a global rollout uh, to basically take through a master data management master clinical trials. They wanted to do faster clinical trials so that they can basically create drugs a lot faster, right? So in that case, they basically bring all of the information on the trials through our platform. And again, trial data is coming. You need to make sure it's the cleaning up of that trial data, quality of that trial data. Trial data also requires privacy and governance on top of it. So right, people get access to that data. All of that goes through our platform for them to have a single place where they can make decisions from what the trial data is telling them. It's another use case of what, what we do in that context. Interesting, because Gilead doing late stage trials aren't looking at 48 patients and trying to make sure one of them gets to their blood draw on time, but they're looking at thousands sometimes to get something to market. And global, by the way, so here the important global, yeah. and, and, they have to, and they can cut it different ways. It's like, you know, gender, age, ethnicity, all of that stuff is important in a trial data. Sure. Um, I want to, well, I don't want to commend you. I, I, you know, so our listeners know that this isn't completely BS. I want to talk about Gartner and I want, I thought you and I could have a brief conversation to enlighten our listeners about the magic quadrant, which is such a big deal in technology. I don't know if it's a big deal anywhere else, but technology. Um, so uh, let me try, I'll try to explain it. Then you correct me. How about that? So Gartner has these industry analysts who publish these expensive reports that the world doesn't usually see they, they don't publish them publicly. Journalists don't usually get to see them. Um, but people in industry, people who make software, for example, or buy software or hardware or whatever, um, do see these reports and pay a lot of money to get these reports where these industry analysts essentially try to figure out what is the best stuff out there in a quadrant. And the quadrant will have an x-axis and a y-axis and the best stuff is up and to the right. Um, you guys, in a handful uh, of things you, you'd love to show off in your investor presentations, I would too if I were you, um, Investor integration platform as a service. 
data quality solutions. These are uh, different reports, master data management solutions and data integration tools. And in all of these cases, you are considered to have the most completeness of vision combined with, and so that's our, our Y axis, with the X axis of the ability to execute. Um, but it, tell me, you know, how does that, why does that matter? Why does a Gartner report putting you in a magic quadrant? Why is that, is there any science behind that as opposed to the opinions of the author at Gartner? And how do you use this kind of a report? That's a terrific question. So first of all, if you step back, you think about put yourself in the shoes of the enterprise buyer, right? So they are making a buying decision. Where Gartner reports become very helpful to them is because they are basically, and it's not necessarily just an opinion because they go out and talk to many customers. They also talk to us and they basically see where the product is, where the adoption of the product is. And based on that discussions with customers and talking to them, they basically make a analytical decision that where is this company? And, and, and hence it becomes a very, in some ways, a very scientific report that enterprise buyers make their decision on because it gives them a sense of comfort that we are not basically, it's not them just looking at what, hearing what the vendor is saying, but somebody else has gone down and scanned the global uh, landscape to give a report card on this particular vendor. So it really gives them a sense of what I call confirmation that they are making the right decision. So it becomes incredibly important. I'll step back and say it's a Gartner report when you put the two axes, ultimately it's of two things. Which is why when I when, when anybody when you were asking me about the company, there are three pillars for us: build the best products, innovation, huge focus on customer centricity, and ultimately it's the people who do that, and it's our values and ethos that ties our employees together. Innovation you see is one axis over there, and customer centricity is the other axis over there. By the way, we spent a billion dollars in R and D to build the best products you see in the innovation axis over there. And the Y-axis sure. ability to execute, you also see we have 95% plus customer retention rates, customers love us. That, those are the kind of things that implicitly the magic quadrant is telling buyers uh, that what this company stands for. It's, it's also interesting to see that across these different platforms, you're competing against some very different competitors in you know, enterprise integration platform as a service. I can't believe that's even a thing, but uh, <laughs> just a, a poorly named. Uh, let me, let's rename enterprise integration platform as a service. I-PASS. I would give in you an easy way out. We call it no, I-PASS in our industry. No, that's just an acronym. That doesn't help anything. I think we should <laughs> say it's like uh, integration, in, enterprise integration. So yeah, gluing the shit together. Um, so that, that probably wouldn't fit in this thing. But in this case, you might be competing with an IBM or uh, a TIBCO um, and beating them soundly. In other cases, you might be competing with an NSAP. Well, they're kind of doing everything out there. Um, but, uh, or Experian, you know, in another case you're, you've, you've got where you're competing against, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, Rivers End and, and, and other, other companies that, you know, don't have that breadth of offering that you guys have. It's, it's just interesting to see that, uh, the way that these different businesses kind of all meld together and you've got to have offerings that compete with some pretty big companies. So it tells you something, right? That first of all, in this very diverse lot of competitors, for us to be in the top right-hand corner, tells something about us. And I'll tell you what it tells about us. I actually have never cared about a competitor. I've only cared about one thing, our customer. Serve the customer, solve for their use case, and you always come out ahead. That has never failed me. And that's what I tell my own team. Look but you've out, got to look notice them. when a competitor's got an offering oh, sure. that's outselling sure. yours or they've, got, they've, look at them. they've fixed a problem that you can't fix. That's exactly. So don't disagree. So look at them. But usually if a competitor has fixed a problem and we have not, 
we haven't done a great job of listening to our customer. Right. Because the customer has a problem that we didn't solve. Somebody else solved it. So I always tell to my teams, listen to the customer. And sometimes you make a conscious, some of these customers, some of these companies are not really competitors. You know, market gets defined many different ways. To be honest, I don't look at them as competitors. They just happen to be there. But as I always say, we always look at the customer and the problem that we have solved, are solving, or the ones we may have missed. Typically, that's where it shows up. So serve the customer, you take care of the competition. And I, is the, the subscription process probably is a lot more, uh, customers probably greatly prefer a subscription, right? As opposed to having to buy these big installs, which is the way you used to sell it. That transformation that you guys made of move, not only changing your products themselves, but also changing how you sell them while you were private and in the garage and then going public again. It looks like that's going really well. It looks like the, you know, the percentage of customers coming uh, uh, through subscriptions and things is really getting to be, you know, not only the fastest growing, but a really important part of your business. Actually, incredibly well. That's how it's going. So I think you, you said something and I want to recap. The, the changes we went through are not for the faint-hearted. Not, there are single-digit companies on the planet who went through the changes we went through and came out successfully. Both a product and a technology change and a business model change. So we were 100% licensed revenue selling company, zero subscription. Now we are 100% subscription selling company, 0% license. We don't sell any more licenses, by the way. Done. So just imagine that. And in 2016, where we had less than $50 million of subscription revenue when we started, today we are a billion dollars. That's what our guide is. So absolutely, customers love it. We love it, by the way. And it forces us to be a different kind of company because in the world of subscription, customer satisfaction and customer success becomes very important. You have to immediately make sure that the product is deployed and is used because when it comes up for renewal, customer will look and say, am I using it or not? And if I'm not, I'm going to cancel the subscription. So it's a great win for the customer. It's a great win for us because if we've done a good job, it's a very predictable business model. So for us, Corey, it has been a tremendous success. At the same time, it wasn't easy. This change is, as I said, I got many scars on, on my back, but they were all been successful as I can look back in time. So, well, it's, it's a fascinating company and it's it'd been interesting to watch these changes and uh, I wish you a lot of luck with it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think Bali, adding to that, I think Bali, you yeah. We have 57, we have 5,000, 6,000 customers now across the globe. So the diversity of customers, we serve any customer across any industry. We talked a few are here on this podcast and you think of the largest brands, United, Lufthansa, you know, FDA, Unilever, all the way up to a Peloton as a small company or Twitch, which was bought by Amazon, the gaming company. Our breadth of use case is very broad and that gives us the- Bloomberg, ability. My, old, my old company. Bloomberg, I mean, the big banks, the big insurance companies, the, you, you, your, your tax bills come from someplace where we kind of help make sure you all, we all have to pay the right taxes, whether or not we may feel good about it or not, but at least we pay the taxes that we owe. Those are the kind of use cases we solve, and hence the business is very sticky. Ami Walia is the CEO of Informatica. I want to do something different. We normally uh, take a quick commercial break and then go to uh, tell one number that tells a whole lot about this business. Could you stick with us for just one more minute? And I want to have you help me do that bite and explain the number real quick. Sure. When the drill down continues. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to the Drill Down podcast in oh so many ways in so many places, including with your smart speaker by asking your smart speaker to play the Drill Down podcast. And you'll hear our most recent show. 
And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, we're back with the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. Isaac Webster's with us. And yes, Amiwali is still with us, the CEO of Informatica. This is a number that I think is really impressive about the transformation of the company from licensed software to subscription. But I don't fully understand it, so I want you to explain it to me. So in your information, you talk about the subscription retention rate, which is how many of your subscription customers stick around. Isaac, you want to take any wild guesses? How long they stick around or how many? Oh, what percentage of them are sticking around? I want to say 20%. It is more. It is 113%, which Amit does not make any sense to me. <laughs> yeah, you, wait a minute. What are they getting fatter? <laughs> Some people got 13% fatter during the pandemic, but no, what do you mean 113% subscription yeah. net retention What rate? it means is net retention. It is that customers, when they, they are buying more, the same customer who bought, let's say Kroger, who bought our products, our capabilities in the world of cloud for this particular use case are actually adding more of our capabilities for that use case. So if they bought a dollar, they come back and buy 13 cents more over a period of time and keep buying more and more and more. So they're just getting more value from a product, so they buy more. Super interesting. Uh, well, interesting story with Informatica. Uh, interesting show today. Isaac, uh, uh, thank you. Amit Walia, thank you for your time today. We do appreciate it and to our listeners as well. Isaac Webster is our executive producer and Ben Wilson is our editor extraordinaire. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.